Why 480? It's the number that drives our work lives. 480 minutes. That's all you have every workday. And the decisions that you make each minute can change everything. When you plan out your business goals over the next two years, that's only 480 workdays to get it done. In your entire 40-year career, you've only got 480 months to make an impact with your work. Time is the limit we can't control. Because time is your most precious resource. This is the Leadership 480 Podcast. Hello again, and welcome to the Leadership 480 Podcast from DDI. My name is Craig Irons, and I'll be your host today. And today, we are zeroing in on the 480 months that make up a leadership career. You know, there are many ways leaders can learn. They can learn by doing, they can learn by reading books, They can learn from leadership development courses or college classes, and they can learn by listening to the experiences of others. While we may think of what we can take away from talking to and listening to a mentor or a coach, you know, sometimes we may overlook what we can learn from others who've already gone through some of the types of leadership challenges we are facing. And in that spirit, today we have a very special guest. Noy Diliaco um, is a retired executive uh, who worked previously for Nestle Corporation in the Philippines. And um, also, uh, he's going to tell us a bit more about his career, uh, which spanned marketing, spanned advertising, education. So he has a lot of experience as a leader and a lot that we can all learn from. Noy, thank you very much for joining us today and welcome. My honor, Greg, thank you. So let's just start by talking about your career. Uh, Can you walk our listeners through your career, including the different jobs and roles you've had in the companies you've worked for? Up until the time I retired, I had worked 46 years uh, straight out of school, of university. I first joined Procter & Gamble. Then I moved on to Johnson Wax. I mean, these two companies are known to you, I'm sure. Before I switched to the advertising industry, because I said I wanted to learn how this thing works, with a clear mind that after that, or that I would not stay too long in that industry. So about six years later, I moved to, to Nestle, where for the next 37 years, I was uh, engaged with them in in various fields, starting with advertising, onto sales, onto marketing, back to sales, back to marketing, until finally, uh, back in 2000, in 1997, I'm sorry, they asked me to take on the job of communications director up until my retirement. Now. In addition to you working for different companies over your careers, you also worked in different locations globally. Yes. So where all did you live and work? Well, first of all, this this all happened during my career at Nestle. Yes. Um, about a year after I joined them, a year and a half, they sent me to Switzerland to study, which was a great motivation. I mean, you can imagine. I'm sure. Uh, six months, five months in Switzerland to do a an executive development program. And then I went back, uh, did a sales management job, something totally new to me. And after that, they sent me back to Switzerland 
this time to train with the beverages division. I was uh, scheduled to stay two years, except that something happened in the region. I needed to replace someone very quickly. So nine months later, I had to pack our bags again and went back to Manila to replace someone. But then uh, I took on other jobs. And in 1991, um, they moved me to Indonesia as marketing director for four years, and after that to Singapore for another four years before coming back to, to Manila. So, um, you know, your, your career covered, as you, you mentioned, you know, marketing, advertising, sales. Um, and I know I mentioned education because you also did some training facilitation later in, in, in your career. Um, over the span of your career, a lot of that time you spent in leadership roles, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. So thinking back to when you first became a leader for the first time, which is, of course, one of the most challenging transitions a leader ever goes through, you know, what was that like for you? Uh, you know, was it difficult? Were there, you know, what were some of the challenges you faced? And, and now looking back on that time, what would you have done differently? First of all, I had to accept the fact that I was a mid-level career hire. So the guys I was going to work with had been there for years. And here I was, an outsider, taking on a certain managerial role. So I, I had to, to balance what I felt I needed to do with the how should I say it, with the feelings of those who, who were there for some time and may have been aspiring for the same position. Right. Um, what, would I, what would I have done differently? You see, when I walked in, especially when I, when I took on the regional sales management job, I mean, I was literally an outsider. I had never done sales before, except with Procter & Gamble for three months. But here I was managing a whole sales team south of the Philippines, by the way, where some armed conflict was going on. And I had to integrate myself, but in a manner that I felt I cannot afford to, to rock the boat, so to speak. They speak a certain dialect in that region, which I could not understand. So this was these were the different issues con confronting me. Now, what would I have done differently? Maybe I should have spent more time immediately trying to assimilate with them. Yes. But instead, during that period, because I wanted to learn, I spent a lot of time analyzing the system, analyzing data. I mean, this is 1980s. Right. And computers were, were not, personal computers were not around. We had green screens and sales data came in thick, wads of uh, printed report. So I had to spend a lot of time doing that. In the process, I had less time um, assimilating with the, with the staff. That's what I should have done. I mean, I should have done differently. What is interesting to me about what you just said is, you know, you were talking about how different it was from a technology standpoint in the 1980s, where, you know, no, 
personal computers. Not everyone had one on their desk yet and, and so forth. But that struggle between, uh, you know, focusing on the data and focusing on the people, that's, that's sort of a timeless struggle, isn't it? Yes, yes. Regardless. Uh, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, before the year was over, uh, my boss calls me from Manila saying, hey, your time's up, come back here. And immediately I said, I need to stay longer here. I'm enjoying it here. And what will I do next? His response was, I don't know yet what you will do, but I need you back here now. I said, why now? Because your replacement is on his way. In other <laughs> words, I wanted to spend more time, uh, again, like I said, assimilating with the staff, spending more right. time with the people. But this was life at Nestle. Uh, we were always, we, we had to be ready to, to move on short notice. And, and this has happened to me a number of times. Yeah. So um, the the challenges that sort of came with that leadership role, you know, you're you're leading salespeople for the first time when you hadn't really done sales. You have the challenges of data versus people, and um, and and also having to lead, uh, you know, some people who aspired to the role that you were in. A lot of challenges there. Um, did you have a mentor or coach that either, you know, sort of helped you through that transition or, you know, that, that you benefited from that relationship even later in your career or at different points? I remember the, the gentleman who hired me, uh, a very prim and proper Englishman, was among my first mentors. He, he was very particular about thoroughness about timeliness, and more importantly, about uh, integrity and, and clarity. Mm -hmm. And we would have, believe it or not, monthly budget meetings, which I felt was unnecessary, but this was his way of really making sure we were on the budget, we were spending this kind of money we said we would, and not overspending. He, he was a great mentor, as far as I was concerned. And then there, there were other, I had other bosses, some were inspiring, others were not so inspiring, but sure. they, they all come in different shapes and forms, I guess. But uh, when I went to this course in Switzerland, we had a course, no, we, we had a professor, uh, he's Canadian, and he was teaching us about servant leadership. And there's a beautiful book by a name by a guy named Robert Greenleaf called Servant Leadership. Yes. And that has been some kind of a guiding handbook for me. It's 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 very it, I found it very inspiring. So up to the time I retired, I would always quote whenever whenever uh, possible, because he, he talks about leadership is about serving others yes, as opposed to leading others first. He said, if you want to be a servant leader, you have to have a desire to help others. And then 
you will gain your authority by doing that, not through a title, a position, or or having power. So, so the the mentorship came from many of the bosses I've had, including some of the things that I came across through reading, etc. We're talking to Noy Diliaco, a retired executive. Uh, who worked most of his career in the Philippines and some other locations around the world. And we're talking about his experience as a leader. Noy, thinking back over your entire career, um, you know, there's, there certainly were a lot of things that you did uh, that I'm sure you look back on and are proud of, and we'll get to those in a second. But um, what do you feel was the biggest mistake you ever made as a leader? <laughs> I I was running the beverages business back home. This was after I was trained in Switzerland. And, you know, we were gung-ho. We were going to uh, outdo what our predecessors had done. And during this period, our coffee business, I mean, we had a lion's share of the market. Lion's share. And together with the technical people in the factory, they had developed a different texture for coffee. Um, how do I describe the texture? It's, it's like uh, caviar, but in tiny, tinier pieces. So imagine these black round balls or brown. Yes. And we thought, you know, this is fantastic. We can, we can sell this as new improved. And I was the one who signed off and said, let's go ahead and launch. Right. We did launch because the research, and we did research, <laughs> told us that the consumers would likely buy it. So we launched. After two weeks, the order stopped because the trade simply refused to uh, accept the, the product. Um, long story short, we had to pull it back pull it out before we had major losses. Uh Now, the good news is this was in test market. Right, right. I mean, I was was, uh, conservative enough to say, let's launch, but in a tiny area. In fact, in a literally in an island in the Philippines, Uh, which reminds me, one of my mentors uh, back in Switzerland would always tell us, you know, when you're when you're launching a product, when you're communicating about the product, sell the steak, not the sizzle. He would always say, <laughs> and he was he was right. You know, reflecting on this adventure, yeah. we were selling the sizzle. We did not improve the flavor, by the way, nor the taste, and and we felt very clever. We thought we were very clever just by selling this caviar-looking texture. <laughs> so that would be one of my monumental <laughs> mistakes. So the flip side of that, um, you know, as you think back over the course of your career, what makes you the proudest uh, of your time as a leader? Well, obviously, I think that the proudest uh moments or experiences would be to see my team, number one, achieving the results, but more importantly, seeing 
these guys rise and begin to assume uh, other roles, including succeeding myself. I mean, one one of the one of the persons I work with eventually took over my role, and to me that was a proud moment. In fact, uh, when I, when I took on this job as communications director back in '97. One of the things I said to them is, okay, I'm not retiring until another 10 years, but let's continue to look around for who, who could succeed me. So yes, uh, developing the people, seeing them rise, and more, more importantly, getting them accepted by the peers in Switzerland, to me was a, was a proud moment. That uh, sounds like it was very consistent with your focus and your interest in servant leadership. Oh, yes, yes. Like I said, Craig, this book by, by Greenleaf has been my sort of uh, guiding, guiding principle, yes. servant leadership. So many people listening to this podcast are either new leaders or people who aspire to become leaders. What advice would you offer them that you wish someone would have given you when you were a young leader? Good question. Come to think of it, when I joined, none of my mentors told me this is what you should look at. They just said, well, here's the job, do it. If I were to talk to young leaders today coming into the fold, I, I, would, I would tell them, don't hesitate to to be assertive. Assert yourself, but at the same time, don't mistake that for leadership. Um, I, I'll go into that in, in a bit, but sometimes there is this mistaken notion that um, if I'm joining the group for the first time, I'm, I'm here to to set the world on fire and and change the whole organization. The flip side of that is the young folks tend to be timid because they don't want to rock the boat, so to speak. So my, my advice to them is scan the horizon, see what you can do to take initiatives, but find the right balance to make suggestions on, on what you can do, what you cannot do. I remember, again, going back to this course in Switzerland, my, my boss in the head office uh, said to me, when you attend this uh, management development program, for the first two days, say nothing. Just look around. Look around who's talking, who's not talking. Look around for the talkative people. And then on the third day, you just take over. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> I think what he meant was find, find your way through the, through the maze, or, right. yeah, so to speak. Uh, and, and not, not over-assert yourself. But this is what I would tell the young people. Uh, challenge the system, find a way to be assertive, and, and take initiative. All excellent pieces of advice. So you were in a leadership role, what, 40 years or close to 40 years in various uh, leadership positions, is that correct? Yes. Um, so I guess over, you know, we think of change as being something that happens so quickly now. 
but what were the biggest changes you saw in workers and also in the nature of leadership itself over the course of your career as a leader? I think one of the things that I that I went through uh, was the influence of new technology into the environment. When I say new technology, uh, the computer. Right. Um, this was in the 80s and 90s, and many of my contemporaries who were managing younger people were so afraid of touching the computer. It got to the point where we, we, we had to organize how to turn on the PC. I mean, it's as simple as that. And I had one colleague who said, no, I'm not going to attend that course. I, I don't know how to do that. My secretary can do that. And I had to tell him, look, you have to learn because you cannot rely on your secretary to do this. So I think the, the, the influx of new technology and how that uh, technology expanded and changed rapidly has been a great challenge to the workers, not so much the young ones, but to, to, to my contemporaries. Now, in, in my case, as early as mid-'80s, when Windows was just coming up, in the office we only had three PCs, green screen. Right. I made a decision. I said, I'm going to learn this beast because this will spell the difference between me and what I need to, to achieve in the years to come. Sure. I remember going to the office on weekends when nobody was around just so I could play around with the, with the IBM PC at that time. So uh, I think this has been a major influence in terms of the changing landscape, the, the, work, the work situation, uh, given the baby boomers, so to speak, and then the, the new generations that, that came. Right. Of course, much later, you have the issue of gender balance. Right. You have the issue of uh, work-life balance. And in fact, even now, they talk about sense of entitlement. But, but these were things that we, were, we took for granted in the past, uh, not that they were unimportant, but this was never really a matter of serious concern then. Right. So, um, you know, you've been out of the workforce a few years, but not too long. Uh, so you have a pretty good sense of, you know, what it was like to be a leader, you know, over those decades up until fairly recently. Do you believe it's harder to be a leader now than it's been in the past? And if so, why? And if not, you know, what do you think is, is sort of timeless about leadership? I, I attended a uh, planning session by the new leadership team in Nestle Philippines not too long ago. And that's where I encountered the acronym VUCA, so where they talk about the environment being volatile, being uncertain, yes. complex, and ambiguous. 
And I remember the, the CEO at that time kept telling me, kept, kept telling me, no, you have to get used to ambiguity because whether we like it or not, it's there. So I think the the decision-making process may be harder, I agree, because of all these things that are happening, which are in a way disruptive because many of them are, are beyond the enterprise's control. I mean, uh, we read about, for example, issues on sexual harassment. If, if this thing were to to blow up in the face of, a, let's say, a major executive or a key executive, then all of a sudden uh, the house is on fire and the communications people have to do something. So, yes, the situation is harder. The decision-making process, I think, takes longer because there are hierarchies. But not just the decision-making process, I reckon even the execution these days is also taking far longer than maybe they should. Um, again, because of hierarchy, because of the need to be careful, right? internal and external forces, these kind of things. And you mentioned um, earlier about you know some of your colleagues who um, were resistant to learning technology because they thought, well, their assistant could help them with that or, or do that for them. And now a lot of leaders are in positions where, you know, they have to do more of that. They have to do more of that themselves. They have to, um, you know, work with their, you know, whatever the um, their data programs or whatever they have. Yes. Um, so they have to be proficient. It's just almost a, a requirement for entry into leadership these days. We're talking to Noid Diliaco, a retired retired executive and leader who worked most of his career in the Philippines and some other locations around the world. We're talking today about his experience as a leader. Noy, let me ask you about one of the absolute hands down toughest parts about being a leader, and that's having really difficult conversations. Whether you're giving someone feedback uh, on their work that you know they may need to improve or there's something they need to address, or even you know, having to let someone go uh, you know, as a leader, uh, for all the years that you were were in leadership roles, did that ever get easier? No. <laughs> <laughs> so if it didn't get easier, then how did you just sort of, you know, I, I know whenever I would have to have a difficult conversation as a leader, uh, you know, I, I might not sleep very well the night before, or it would really weigh on me. I mean, is that just something that you kind of get used to, for lack of a better word? Or what's what's sort of the secret to developing some level of comfort with having to have those conversations? The difficult part is when someone who is seen as a performer all of a sudden disrupts the organization by doing things that they should not have done. And this is where the, the unease comes in. Uh-huh. But before I, before I go to that, I think the easy part is during performance appraisal moments or, or, or days, it's easy to, to deal with the performer. Conversation is pleasant, high fives after the session, and 
see you next year for your next uh, right. for your next uh, evaluation. I used to do this trick with everyone when it came to performance evaluation. I would say, here's the rating sheet. You rate yourself, and I will also rate you. When we get together, let's compare notes. Somehow, that sort of eases the discomfort. Yes. What I also found is that more often than not, most people, in fact, many people would underrate themselves. So, for example, on a scale of five, I would first ask them, okay, so here, when it comes to communication, how would you rate yourself? Oh, here I think I've, I've actually had the guy saying, I've let you down. I've let you down here, I think I rate myself a three or a two. When I would rate them a four, uh, of course, some, some guys have said, oh, I write five. <laughs> Those were exceptions. Right. Now, so, so this process has helped me and the staff to have a more comfortable conversation. Uh-huh. And in the end, um, by the way, when I say, no, no, I think I'd rate you a three here instead of your four. And I would say, okay, it's okay. No problem. And I think the, the the key is to find out at the end exactly what they would, how they rate it. But this process has helped me, uh, like I said, to remove the the discomfort. Now, firing people is another is another matter, and uh, yes, uh, it's very discomforting, and it doesn't get any easier because the the circumstances are different mm-hmm. from one person to another. I used to have a, a boss who couldn't fire others, and he would call me and say, take care of this guy. I said, what has he done? Here's his dossier. Talk to him. <laughs> so, so I would tell the other person, look, I don't know what's happened, but this is, a, this is the report, and I think we're better off if you're no longer in this organization. Um, there have been some some bitter moments. Sure. Uh, but in the end, I felt it was necessary to protect the, the enterprise. There's, there's a course, Craig, uh, there's a DDI course called Strategic Leadership Experience. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which I had the privilege to, to run together with one of your facilitators. Yeah, the Strategic Leadership Experience for our listeners is a DDI course, it's uh, run over a number of days, and it is a, uh, a simulation that leaders moving up to a strategic leadership role can go through to learn what it's like in that role. One of my favorite uh, roles there is called Guardian of the Enterprise. And... and I think it's important that if you're a leader, you have to guard the enterprise. Of course, for good reasons. Sure. And if it includes having to let go of people who you may be friends with, or maybe you've even hired, then uh, we we just set aside the the relationship part. 
and stick to to the situation. Yeah. And again, more often than not, when confronted with this, the the staff uh, accepts the the outcome. Yes. One guy I had to fire had defrauded a supplier. And I said to him, I, I had a call from a supplier, and he tells me that you've been uh, receiving bribes. And he said, you don't, have the, you don't have the proof. I said, I don't need to have proof. He's telling me, and he's ready to show me proof. But I don't even want to go there. I said, I need your resignation. This was not happening at 9. I need your resignation on my desk at 12 noon today. Then he left in a half, very angry. I was thinking, what's going to happen at noon? At noon, he, uh, he comes to my office with a letter. Finished. I think sometimes it takes, uh, I don't know how you call it, uh, political will, as they say. Yes. You just have to, to bite the bullet and, and, and do it. There's no ifs, no buts. It's never easy, never like easy. you said. No. Let's talk about something a, a bit different. So leading a team through a period of change, which just seems like it's such a common demand on leaders these days. Um, you, you must have done this multiple times over the course of your career, you know, having to lead people through times of change and transition. What advice would you offer our listeners for how to do that effectively? First of all, every time there's a change in the organization, it disrupts everyone. And the comfort zones are disturbed. So I, I think the, the, the first advice I would give is, by all means, announce the change in no uncertain terms. Make sure that everyone is... Uh, thoroughly informed, make room for those who doubt and allow them to come back and say, can I have a one-on-one -on -one with you because I don't agree with what I heard. But I'd say <clears throat> announce a change, but go slow until you're sure that everyone is, on, is, is with you on it. Because in, in the end, you need everyone to be with you. You cannot just say, Today, we will uh, abolish this department and create a super department headed by so-and-so. It, it, it's very disruptive. Sure. Um, in, my, in my last position at Nestle, where I had uh, the job of director of communications, we had a massive uh, org change in our in our sales organization, we we moved from direct selling to distributorship, which means we had to let go of many people, some very talented, because they were no longer necessary. Right. So we had to help HR prepare a massive uh, presentation to the staff, and we had to do this in groups. Mm -hmm. Why? What's the change, why are we doing this, what are the benefits to, to those concerned? 
and uh, and and that that worked. We, we also said uh, if you need if you need uh, one-on-one consultations, here are the people to to talk to. So announce it, make it clear, make sure everybody understands what what's in store, but go slow. In our case, we said this will not happen until X month. So it's not as if it's happening tomorrow. Right. What do you think is the most important skill or ability a leader needs to have? To me, to me communication is, is the most important. Because the leader who has the appropriate skill skills in communication can then move on to do other things. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, the leader has to announce his vision, describe his vision. A leader must be a storyteller. You know, if, if his vision is we want to be the, the best performing coffee business in this part of the world, he has to tell that story in, in many different ways so that the people are inspired. And this is all communication. I'm, I'm um, again here, I'm, I'm led by what I read or what I read. There's a guy named William Zinser who, who wrote a book on writing well. Yes, wonderful book. And I, I can never forget what he said. When you communicate, he said, you have to be single-minded, you have to be clear, you have to be concise, and you need a touch of humanity. I'm beautiful. And I've tried to follow that uh, whenever I have to to communicate anything. Single-minded, clear, concise, and then I add a little bit of, of humanity in there. Um, someone also said, and this one I, I use in my, my DDI facilitation work before, reason leads to conclusion, but emotion leads to action. And I think the leader has to embrace all of this. Because once you have the perfect skills, everything else follows. Empathy, listening, influencing people. Otherwise, if you cannot communicate what you have in mind, how will people act or react? Craig, to me, everything revolves around how one can effectively communicate his vision, and more importantly, uh, how the staff can then begin to break that down into doable parts uh, so that they can be let go and, and do whatever they have to do. We're talking to Noy Diliaco, a retired executive, about his experiences as a leader. Just a few more questions for you here, Noy. Um, and we just talked about uh, the importance of communication as a skill all leaders must have. But is there a leadership skill or ability that you think is overrated or maybe gets too much attention? I was reading about Introverts, Susan Cain, and I, uh, I kept smiling along the way because I'm, 
I consider myself an introvert. I remember when I was, what, maybe 10, 12 years old, there was a big party in our, neighbor, in, in our neighbor's house. And my father said, why don't you go there? We're invited. I said, I don't have to go there. I don't know anyone there. He said, well, the idea is so you can meet people. I said, I don't need to meet people. I'm happy. I'm happy staying home. So Susan Cain talks about uh, the power of introverts, you know, in a world that can't stop talking. I think, the, to me, what's, under, what's overrated, that's what was the question, right? Overrated. Correct, yes. To me, I think what's overrated is the bias towards extroverts as natural leaders. And I had just seen a Netflix uh, documentary on, on Tony Robbins. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's, it's Tony Robbins versus Susan Cain. Um, and Susan Cain says a third to 50% of people are introverts. And then she, she goes on to say, our research studies show that introverts, in fact, when they lead a team, are able to achieve more because they have focus. And they allow the members of the team to work alone the way they would do themselves, as opposed to extroverts who will demonstrate a spurt of energy, but in the process they'll be all over the place and maybe not get things done as quickly or as thoroughly as an introvert leader would do. So to me, I think that's probably, so it's not so much a skill, but a personality trait. Right. So by the time you finished your career, you were a senior leader. Um, What advice can you offer based on your own personal experience for leaders who aspire to move up? First of all, I would tell them demonstrate that you're good at what you were hired to do before you even say, I want to be CEO in three years. Um, so if we hire you as a middle manager to, to look over a certain team or a certain project, do the best that you can deliver what you've been asked to do and make your bosses proud that they hired the right guy. After that, once they begin to notice you, then find ways to begin to express your own interests or desire. Nothing wrong with that. And say, you know, uh, I think I can also try this particular job. So the second point I'd like to say is be dispensable. Allow yourself to to grow out of your current job mm-hmm. so you can do something else. And But again, if you move to a new job, to a different job within the same company, again, make an effort to excel whether it's sales, whether it's communication, whether it's HR, just excel. Along the way, they will notice you, and this is where your opportunity will come in and say, you know, I would like one day to 
maybe work in Pittsburgh or work in Switzerland uh, to advance my career because I still don't know a lot. And I think I think the bosses would uh, would appreciate that being being forthright. And to me, it's not seen as as being too ambitious, too assertive. It's it's just expressing a, an interest. And during the performance evaluation, there's a portion there that says, "Where do you where do you see yourself uh, progressing in this company?" Right. And that's a good opportunity to to express your interest or desire. Good stuff. So one of the, um, you know, our, our, our conversation today is, you know, is, is we're being reflective. We're, we're looking back over, over your career. And one of the great advantages of looking back is you can look back and, and you know, a sort of a sense of realization that, you know, maybe I worried too much about this one thing that I probably shouldn't have worried about, or maybe I should have spent more time on this one area over here that I didn't spend as much time on. Um, what's your take on that? I mean, what were, was, was there one thing you could identify that you maybe either worried too much about or spent too much time on? And the flip side of that, was there something you wish you would have done more over the course of your career? I worked many years with marketing people who were developing launch plans for new products and new advertising, etc. And through the years, there was this there was this notion that if you're launching a new product or a new campaign, it has to happen on Easter Sunday. Why? Nobody knows. I challenged that. I said, who watches television on Easter Sunday? And I was told, well, here are, here's the data. So what, what I'm saying is, during this period, the young guys would pressure themselves, including the agency, to develop this new campaign. And I'm not talking one, one brand, I'm talking several brands. Right. And I used to tell them, do you really think your consumers are lining out there on Easter Sunday waiting for your new ads? I said, what, what happens if you were to, to not advertise on Easter Sunday? Um, so how, how I wish I could influence, but I, I was never able to influence them to do otherwise <laughs> because this was a, this was a habit. Uh, and, and in fact, recently I asked the question, are you still advertising on Easter Sunday? And the answer was yes. Um, so I think there are certain habits among, well, I was working with, with marketing staff mainly, that, that's, that are difficult to, to change. And in a way, I, I empathize with them because they drive themselves crazy, more so the agency to, I mean, rather than have a week of rest during the Easter week, uh, they're out finishing adverts, etc. I don't know if I answered your question. Oh, you definitely answered the question. Only one question that we ask all of our guests, and I want to ask this of you today. Can you share a moment of leadership that had an impact on you? 
I was listening to your podcast with Wayne, and 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 I came across this question. That what's a what's a good moment of leadership that I can share? This will be a, a long a long reply, Craig. Um, back in the early nineties, our CEO in Switzerland started to issue what he called Blueprint for the Future. This was his vision on how Nestle was going to do certain things in certain areas. And he had a blueprint uh, for the future on communication, a thick uh, document, where he said anything that the company communicates the CEO is finally responsible for it. However, he said the CEO has no time to look after every piece of communication. That's why he needs a senior executive to help him do the job. And this is how the job of communications director came about. Right. His vision is that this person would report directly to the local CEO, and together they would vet communication materials of all kinds. Now, up until this time, the group managers in each of the businesses were doing the vetting. So again, <laughs> here I come, announcing to everyone, hey guys, I will now be involved in the decision-making process, and boy, this was approved I mean this was this was met with great uh, resistance or very lukewarm uh, response one guy even said why should I now show him what I could approve previously I said I'm sorry I'm just here to do a job fortunately during the time uh, we would have global CD conferences. And I remember distinctly, one day in Switzerland, we had, we were, I was having breakfast with my counterpart from the US. And I asked him, I said, Al, how do you get your job done? And he was relating to me the same experience. I step in, group product managers dislike what I was doing, dislike the role. He said, I'll tell you what, pick on the low-lying fruits. Ignore everybody else, get someone uh, and help him find a solution to his communication problem. Pick the simplest one. Before long, he said, word will get around what you've done, and what will happen is they will start queuing outside your room. So I come back, I found a guy, he was in charge of KitKat. And he said, no, I, I bought six trucks. They're plain. I want to put KitKat design in all of them. KitKat, the, the candy bar. Yes. Yes. But I don't have the money, and I don't even know how to make the design. I said, okay, I'll help you. I'll help you with the design. I'll help you with the cost to install the design. I'll pay 50%. So you take care of the three trucks, I'll take care of the three. We did that. At the end of that production, I said, do me a favor. Park all six cars 
in the parking lot to the office where everybody can see. It worked like magic. <laughs> as early as 9 o'clock, people were saying, who did those uh, trucks? Who did the design? What is the cost? So yes, before long, there was queue outside my room. I mean, I, th I think it, the, the lesson learned here, Craig, is uh, not so much that you know we did something magical, but again, it's the power of influential leadership. Um, again, the servant leadership thing. It's the it's the idea of being able to foster cooperation, foster collaboration without forcing them to my position as director of communication. I mean, I said, look, you know, you know, I'm in my room. If you think I can help you, I will be more than happy to help you. If I, if you think I'm not necessary, it's up to you. But if my boss asks me, if I vet your materials, I will tell them no. Uh, if you if you decide if you decide to to ignore what I can do. From then on, uh, gradually, th there was a change in in cooperativeness. So much so that the director of marketing then said, made it very clear. From now on, all materials have to be vetted by either myself, and or Noi. No exception. So that is almost an example. What I'm kind of hearing there is you had to, you had to build trust. Yes, yes, I had to build trust. I had to, to show them uh, that I cared for, for what they were doing, and that I understood their needs. And that's a really important thing that leaders need to do every day, isn't it? Yes, yes. Again, it, in the end, it's it's really, it really boils down to. To caring for for the people doesn't matter whether they report to you or they belong to a different department. Right. It's uh, it's being able to empathize and 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 show to them that look, this is a great company to work for. We're here to help. And I, I'm one of my one of the things I keep telling them is I'm here to help you succeed. Uh, I'm not competing with anyone. I'm I'm out of here in less than ten years. Noy Deliaco, thank you so much thank for the best. time today. This has been a really wonderful conversation. I'm sure our listeners have heard a lot today that they can uh, they can take away from this. I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be here. By the way, if I may just add one more thing. We were talking about... Please. We were talking about uh, a decision-making... Is the decision-making process harder? Yes. One of the things I... Uh, experienced was in a large organization there are many people who can say no but very few people who can say yes and oftentimes the people who can say yes are way down the decision making chain and I've encountered this again in the area of uh, approving communication where before the agency would come and it's all the people who can say no meeting with them. So this was going on backwards and forwards. The agency would go back, they'd come back, still the same people who can say no. And by the time they get to their bosses who can say yes, the boss will say no, because he didn't like what, what he saw. So in this particular instance, I said, look, let's, let's try to experiment. I will only have one meeting. All those who can say yes 
and all those who can say no are in one meeting. This was a great challenge to the bosses who would always say, oh, no, no, I don't have the time. I said, it's important that we're all in that one meeting together. And after the presentation of the agency for approval, I would turn around to those who can say no, comments. And so we'd, we'd pick the comments. And then to the bosses who can say yes. Do you agree with the comment? Uh, what should we do? What, what we accomplished doing that was at the end of the meeting, we were very clear on what the agency could do or could not do. Right. So the next, when they turned around, yes, uh, the, the ones who can say yes need not be there anymore because after all, we've already discussed the details. I don't think that's still that's being done now, but how I wish they would, they would try that again because it saves a lot of time it saves a lot of uh, anguish and emotion. And uh, it doesn't waste the agency's time. Right. I was in a meeting last week very similar to that where uh, some people who had the power to say no to some things, uh, you know, we just had to bring them together because they just didn't necessarily have all the information. And you can accomplish so much sometimes just by getting people in a room and and making sure everyone has all the same information, can't you? Yeah. Noy, thank you so much. Well, thanks again, Craig. Great conversation. My name's Craig Irons, and I want to thank you again for listening to the Leadership 480 podcast from DDI. And I want to remind you to make every moment of leadership count.